0: by Philip Sugars and we read by Tony Bell. Philip has a yellow eye in the centre of his forehead and a collection of vintage binoculars. His work has appeared in many places including The Guardian and The Interzone. He was winner of the Ilkley Literary Festival in 2011 and runner up for the 2012 James White Award. Tony is an evening standard award nominee for a man of all, for all seasons. He's performed all over the world with award-winning all-male Shakespeare company propeller, playing bottom, feste, autoculus,
1: Ortologus, <laughs> and Trania.
0: TV includes Coronation Street, Colby City, Midsummer Murders, EastEnders, and The Bill. He's also a radio and voiceover artist. Tony!
2: Upwards behind the on-streaming, the dark silvers in the moonless, by Philip Sugars. Keith sits on a cold metal seat in Victoria Station, his last double washing around his head. He feels like an anaesthetised tooth, his pain hollowing him out. He puts his hand in his pocket and it slips around his front door key. The metal teeth bite his fingertips, reminding him that he can't go home. Janet had looked right through him as though he wasn't even there. There's someone else, she'd said. Someone solid. Someone who wants to make something of his life. Someone willing to take risks. He imagines this substantial other. His leonine hair, his broad chest, his perfect teeth in his perfect mouth so hard to ignore, so indisputably and resolutely there, clad head to foot in black, no doubt, rappelling into his house to deliver chocolates, flowers, and all-night back robbers. He would do anything to be like that. I can arrange that for you, says a voice from beneath his feet. He looks down, There amongst the bloom of concentric shadows are the black overlapping petals of a mouth. The figure has no eyes and no nose, but there are what might pass for hands, which the clustered lights extend into webs of long tentacular fingers. Arrange what, says Keith to the shadow. For you to forget, it replies. Its voice is similar to his, he supposes, if he'd gone to a better school. Dan spoke with a microphone. (laughs) Keith rocks back in his seat and swallows. He closes his eyes and opens them, but the shadow is still there. It waves at him with angled tendrils. He swallows. Are you going to give me three wishes then? Is this that sort of thing? He says. Do you want it to be? Says the shadow. Keith scratches his head. He remembers these types of stories from his childhood. If it is, then my first wish is to have more wishes, he says. (laughs) This is not going to be that sort of thing, (laughs) says the shadow, making a passable attempt at a gallic shrug. There is a dry rustling sound as it rubs the back of one of its hands with the palms of the other. Blood rushes through Keith's ears. He feels suddenly sober and grief breaks over him again in a wave. He suppresses a sob. Tenderly, the shadow runs its fingers over his shoulder. Keith shivers and tears glisten in the corners of his eyes. Let it all out, says the shadow. I'm here for you. (laughs) Keith doesn't want to talk, but before he knows it, the words are tumbling out of him. I I don't feel like I've ever really been alive, he says. Perhaps I'm just not even supposed to be here. There, there, whispers the shadow, patting him in the way a cat might pat at a dead mouse. (laughs) And, And I keep thinking of something that happened when I was four or five, he says. I was sitting in the bath listening to my mother reading a story and there was this nonsense phrase in it, Upwards, behind the on-streaming, the dark silvers in the moonness, The shadow stifles a shadowy yawn. I leant back to listen, but the bath was one of those old enamel ones and I slipped backwards. The next thing I remember, I was looking up from under the water. There was just the tickle of bubbles in my ears and everything was lit up with this blue glow. I saw my mother standing in the bathroom doorway and there was this shadow, like a spider leeching in the corner of the room and your breath prompts the shadow bubbles streamed out of my mouth like a string of pearls keith wipes his eyes with his fingers when i think about it i, I feel like part of me stayed there under the water the shadow nods and its fantail hands glide towards him the truth is everyone's shadow is woven from dead thoughts, it says. People you've left behind, or things that didn't happen. Nostalgia for the impulses that you never acted upon, or the regrets for those that you did. As you can see, as your shadow, I am really rather well fed. <laughs> Keith drives his nose on his sleeve. But listen, it says... It's late, and I don't want you to miss your last train. (laughs) Keith stumbles across the concourse, past the ticket inspector who ignores him anyway, and climbs aboard the train. He works his way up the empty carriages from one address to another, swaying like a pirate in high seas. As the train pulls out of the station, he finds a deserted first-class carriage and slumps into a darkened corner. He feels like he's collapsing in on himself, fading again, disappearing from the view of the universe. If he just blinked out of existence now, who would even know that he'd ever been alive? That's the spirit, breathes a voice from the opposite corner of the carriage. The train plunges into a tunnel and slows to a halt. It shakes for an instant and the lights go out. With the hissing of silk on silk, the shadow unfurls. Keith feels its fingers stroking his face like cobwebs. What do I have to do to forget, he asks. Simple, says the shadow, its voice very soft and very close to his ear. We just need to swap places. He thinks that the shadow might be holding its breath and hovering in the dark close enough to kiss him. The earthy smell of rotten fruit clogs the back of his throat. It sighs and opens its hand inky fingers glide across the carriage and caress the door release it opens with a pneumatic sigh all you have to do is hop out to show some resolve be willing to take a risk i'll be with you every step of the way keith rises to his feet and clambers across the carriage belching and determined this will show show them he thinks He pauses. In the tunnel outside, there's nothing but the sound of the wind. He smells rain and leans on the doorframe, smudging his fingertips with grease. You won't remember, says the shadow, but Janet Janet will never forget you. He takes a breath, summons up all his courage and launches into the dark, hitting the stone ballast below him like an empty sack. The shadow flutters to his side and all its sham urbanity evaporates. Kneel! It hisses and Keith obeys, pitching himself forward over the metal tracks. The shadow presses his head against the rail. The steel sings in his ear, announcing the uncoming train long before Keith sees it. A voice far away in his belly screams that he should get up but the shadow presses down on him, his limbs go numb as though filled with ice water. It is only then that Keith feels his shadow's hunger, its need to be seen and heard. It whispers to him of the cold, dark world it comes from and of all the people who have already been consumed by their shadows. They meet at the dead of night, it says under motorway bridges, in closed railway stations, in darkened cafes, talking in screeches and staring at each other with eyes that are filled with octopus ink and longing. This is the way it has always been, says the shadow, for those like him. The train appears, its lights diffusing into a blue glow. Keith whimpers and his tears melt the oncoming lights into a string of pearls, He feels the wet kiss of rain on his cheek and realises he doesn't want to die. He tries to sit up, but the shadow bears down on him, forcing the air out of his chest. A black butterfly tongue uncoils from its mouth and flickers along his cheek, tasting his tears. He breathes in and twists with all his strength. He frees his left hand and tries to push himself off the ringing metal. The oncoming train is a blur and a deafening roar. The stone ballast dances a rattling jitterbug beneath the rails. A bow wave of air announces its arrival, making Keith's ears pop. With a yell, he finally forces himself upright. The muscles in his arms and legs crackle. He cannons sideways, rolling beneath the shadow. The train pummels the tracks an instant later in a wall of thunder and metal and the shadow is torn to smoke and rags by the light and the noise. <laughs> there is a second of silence and then the lights in the carriage flicker on. Keith runs out of the tunnel. Hops across a muddy brook and into the wooded embankment. He reaches into his pocket and flings his front door key away. Then his jacket, then his shirt, and his trousers, naked and shadowless. He runs laughing through the trees, while upwards behind the on streaming, the dark silvers in the moonness.
0: Our second story of the evening will be Barrett, by Ursula Dewey, and read by Beverly Longhurst. Ursula is originally from the Isle of Wight, but she is now living and working in London as a digital editor for a female lifestyle site. She was a finalist for the Vogue Talent Contest in 2011, and spends her free time writing fiction. Beverly trained at Weber Douglas. She has worked in a range of theatre, including All My Sons, Remembrance of Things Past, Morning Becomes Electra, Way Upstream, and Shadow Language. She's also worked in TV, including the BBC sketch show Little Miss Jocelyn, and film. She's also a narrator for the RNIB. Beverly.
3: Ursula Dewey. Barrett was his last name, but everyone used it like it was his first, ever since he was a lad. His first name had faded in people's memories and even in his own, so that when it came to doctor's appointments, electoral registers, court trials, the shape and sound of this other word in front of Barrett would give him an uncomfortable feeling, as though he was standing in for someone he didn't really know. He had tried out the idea of marriage, had knelt down on the faux faux fur rug in Carol's flat and presented her with a ring and said the required words with the necessary effort and emotion. She'd said yes on the Friday, with wet eyes and an overwhelmed blush on her cheeks. But by Monday morning, she had packed her bags, removing her possessions from his spare drawer, leaving the ring on Barrett's bedside table. It was the first thing he saw every morning for five months. Evidence. That particular disaster, he never saw her again, had turned into a good few stories at the pub. His favorite version, was the one where she left for California to become a glamour model. Sometimes he got closer to the truth. He cheated on her with another hot blonde. She turned psycho, usual crap. He was pitied for it by others. They all had wives. Drab ones with cigarette breath and brittle hair. Women who loved them tirelessly, even when they came belching home with beer-stained shirts. Once, a while after Carol, Barrett had a soaring in his chest when a girl with soft curls came into the George. Stacy, she was called. He bought her a drink, and there'd been a feeling in the air like summer was coming. He walked her home, and they'd shared a kiss in the dark. It was urgent, out of his control. Months later, he thought he caught sight of the back of her. She was pushing a buggy with a man by her side. Remembering her brought on the sensation of rising and falling, like a plane coming into land from a trip he didn't want to end. In the early days of his life, he had spent a lot of his free time at the park with Lenny, his best friend, the only one who had consistently spent time with him. Lenny was younger by three years, easy to influence. They'd swap cards and stamps, play truth or dare, and rated girls out of ten. Barrett did a lot of good trades with Lenny. Most of his time was spent hanging around the tyre swing. It was where he'd had his first cigarette, his first joint too, and was also the place where he'd been with a girl for the first time, while Lenny looked out for passers-by. Angela, she was called. A heavy set blonde from the estate, big boned, a regular fighter. She said she didn't have parents. The tyre, hanging as it did from a gnarled piece of rope, always made him think of the trip he'd taken to the zoo with his uncle when he was a boy. They looked at the sad, dimpled faces of the orangutans with their close set eyes and copy capped expressions so that all of the events that unraveled at the tire were assaulted by the imagined presence of his uncle's cloth cap and slacks and the sense of watching a trapped thing. Barrett was always inclined to show off. As a child, he acted up. As a teen, he fooled around. As a young adult, he was attention seeking. He saw a visiting psychologist once when he was 11 who suggested it was all in reaction to the incident with his mother and that man who wasn't his uncle after all balls out barrett his mates at the pub would call him game for a laugh a joker outside the shadow of his mother's hometown far from the tire and the terraced house of his childhood miles from the lingering home smell of grease cheap air freshener and benson hedges flourished he moved south to London he made small talk friends easily over pints and matches picking the right teams the winners he felt safest when surrounded by strangers his gullet he found could be opened up if he got the right angle of his throat and down it he could pour several pints in succession and entertain the bar each time a new memory of open mouths and red faces cheering for him. It wasn't a surprise to hear many committed suicide. In a place like Woodness, it's hard to think of anything else to do. Barrett joked. The lads had tried to put on a good show back home, but their sadness was palpable. He came back from London to sit with them at the George for a while and join them in their silence between sips. Barrett knew Lenny's trouble. All that concrete and dirt. The endless view of mud on mud from the grubby window of his box room at his parents' <coughs> place. The perpetual presence of the tyre. Some people never move on with their lives. It was a grim way to go. He'd chosen a sharp edged kitchen knife, and the shower room on a day when his mum was at the WI. Despite Lenny's precision with his veins, copied from a diagram on the internet, Barrett couldn't picture Lenny's final moments without looping a noose of twisted, dirty rope around his neck and visually swinging him from the bough of the tree, feet still twitching. He couldn't cry for Lenny, he didn't cry for cry for carol either all that time ago there are some people who come into your life and some who disappear not long after Lenny's final trip to the bathroom Barrett took up gambling he wouldn't have said the two are connected on Tuesday nights it was always quieter with the bookies he'd watch his fingers slide silver into the waiting slot press the button slip in another coin lose it and repeat until finally the noise of success tumbled into his ear canal. The best sound for a while was metal falling on metal, loot tipped into the dish for futile retrieval. He tried the horses at first, he liked the names. Flirt in a skirt, best way to go, remember me. Scanning through the names, his attention would snag on words that would make their own stories like messages from another dimension wolf moon girl talk everyone's friend our secret when he had a big win he'd stumble up to the pub and buy a round for everyone it felt like success one time you wouldn't believe it just like that this crazy thing happened unbelievable told you she's a good one the stories he told, tall as he was, were always taller. False reports. Details spun into strange shapes. Always a contradiction, a moment of doubt. He loved it. Hated to disappoint. Most sickos are silent types, right? You've seen them in the movies, all tortured, like living with their mothers, never socialising. This guy is not like that. He's a fucking nut job. But you wouldn't know it, he just came into the shop one day, took totally normal, stabbed this woman in the leg. I was there. Blood went all over the show, worse than a bloody abattoir. No matter whether the stories were true or not, as long as he was telling them, and as long as the words were caught with both hands by his audience, he'd spin whatever came to mind. Fictitious women he'd slept with, men he got got into fights with, bets he'd won, Places he'd been, matches he'd watched. Got the gift of the gab, this one, they'd say. Never had much luck with women, though. After a good storytelling session, he'd returned to his bedsit. Dirty magazines on one side, ashtray and cigarettes on the other. TV kept on low all night for company's sake. By day, he worked as a security guard at the supermarket watching several screens, mundane lives on loop. Grief struck him down suddenly in his forties. It felt like cement closing in on all sides and setting, firm yet brittle, like old bones. He remembers a rain-drenched road, car lights, and street lamps casting ripples of color onto the watery ground. When he thinks back on this moment, he has an out-of-body experience, watching himself laid flat on the pavement, his bloated mass casting a wet shadow in the dark, like a whale washed ashore in the city. He can never forget the song of the ambulance that came to collect him, a shrill melody of urban angels saving his life, screaming at him not to stop. He caught pneumonia, which made crying difficult, and he had never wanted to cry before. All he could think about was this girl he'd met, Lucy. Face crumpled, the red-stemmed tooth on the ground. He could have left it there in the woods for nature to claim and bury, for future generations to excavate. But he kept it instead, a souvenir. It had all gone wrong when he got barred from his local, had just about turned him crazy. He wouldn't have said he was an alcoholic, but the feeling drink gave him was second to none. He came across God much later in his life when the ache of his actions, both conscious and otherwise, had become too much to stomach alone he felt the throb of guilt surface as soon as he went dry. He'd hoped to destroy a lot more of his mind with drink, but the moment his eyes shut, he could conjure vivid faces with twisted, downturned lips, sobs jumping out from between them, or worse, flesh exposed in the wrong place. Outside, among dead leaves, under a lid of cloud, The Lord is truth. Jesus is truth. The gospel, truth. He fell down on his knees on Sundays to receive the pastor's blessing in a concrete church in Hackney. His neck and head slumped forward in prayer, wordlessly giving up his sins for the silent, inconclusive examination of God. We have no experience of the Day of Judgment, a thing that Barrett fears at night. When the police came, he was an old man. They said they were interested in the events that had happened in his younger years. In his hometown, they said. Witness. He couldn't remember a thing. Possible early dementia, he joked. Maybe I should get me egg checked. He ran his hand over his bald patch, the stroke of his palm slipping over the soft, fine down. He didn't know what they were talking about. He hadn't touched anyone against their will. He never had time for women at all. Was a man of the church these days, and before that, the pub, mostly the horse and groom. He had never met an Angela. Never heard of a Carol. Couldn't remember a Lenny. Dead suspect, apparently. Rape and assault. And worse. Terrible. Didn't know a Stacy. Or a Lucy. He didn't know a thing when they cuffed him and put him in the back of the police car. Didn't even know his name.
0: Thank you,
4: Beverly.
0: Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be "Snipe Hunter" by Eleanor Etienne, read by Clive Greenwood. Eleanor is working on a short story collection since completing her novel, "The Exclusions of Love." Her stories have been read at Vanguard Readings and Story Slam and she's a graduate, certificate of novel writing at City University. Clive just filmed new children's series uh, Little Fergie and appears in two upcoming features, Mob-Handed and Young Retender. He co-wrote Goodbye, the afterlife of Cook and Moore, and in May he begins to tour Up Pompeii, playing Murcio, originally written for Frankie Howard. Clive!
5: Night Hunter,
1: by Eleanor Etienne. Birthdays don't mean much to a fella. Once he's hit the big twenty-one, can purchase a beer in any bar in town, raise it to his lips in plain view. Not that Davy had waited until legal age to sit up at the bar and sip a beer. Davy Sr. liked to drive down to Willie's, with little Davy on his lap small hands under his on the steering wheel. Once there, he'd pull up a stool and toss around a little banter, the kind of thing that would have been called gossip if women said it. Little Davy would steal a sip while his paw pretended not to see. Davy watched his paw with wide eyes that became a mirror to show him who he would become. Didn't he do his darn? He cultivated that swagger in his walk, the lazy lilt in his voice. The snigger, it wasn't quite a laugh, but made everyone else laugh because it sounded of filthy thoughts and suspect joys. He was liked, it wasn't much better in life than that. Davy still keeps his father's stool Since Davy Sr. isn't around to sit in it anymore, he raises a glass to his reflection behind the bar. 6-0, now that's a big one, same age as his paw when he passed. Davy came close to death himself once, didn't he? He stood right up and he looked it in the eye. Yeah, it only had one. The door swings open, and the fellas are in, held up by their girls. Four young men in denim, jeans and jacket both, each with an arm slung wide around a pretty girl's shoulders. The girls' eyes are glazed tired. Their legs look cold with so little to cover them. They wear lip gloss in that frosted pink that makes Davy think of cotton candy and other sticky, sweet things. Things made for the sight, not for the taste. The fellows crowd round Davy, girls still attached, Levi, Connor, Mason, and Jackson. It's on account of him not having any offspring of his own that catches Davy in that hinterland between wise old man and compatriot. They like to show off their girls as if a pretty young girl is something Davy might secretly want. He doesn't. Sally, though, Davy likes the lines that play with Sally's eyes when she smiles. Sally hears Davy thinking about her. Glides over, one foot after the other, like walking on thin ice. Sally always smells like fresh, tumble-dried cotton. Davy can never understand how that's possible in a nicotine box like this. Her hair is too blonde, but sometimes she lets the roots grow in, and Davy can see the red she belongs to. Davy runs a fingertip to the edge of his glass. He heard one of them entertainers once, the ones that play tunes with glasses and Fair in a Man of War. Pretty smart, that. What you doing there, Davy? <laughs> Levi says. Just thinking about playing a tune. Is that so? Says Connor. And their words say, oh fool, but felt in that tender way. Sally pours four beers for the fellas and one more for Davy. Davy likes to sip slow. Not gulping without tasting. He's the same with his food. <laughs> Once Sally had laughed, called him out sensuous man. He laughed too and wondered how she thought up a word like that. It was what he was. The fellas watch him drinking and all they see is the stomach swell, the chin sway. He knows. Levi nudges Jackson, prompting a question. Why don't you go hunting no more, Davey? Now who are they be talking to? Davey shrugs his shoulders Loose to the air. No reason. Huh. Folks might be saying you lost the knack. Davy laughs, hollow. Why would folks be talking about me? I ceased being infamous a long time since. Hadn't he once been able to catch anything? Anything living and hiding out there in those woods. Now Davy's just the old fella who keeps the bar company each night. Funny how quickly people forget who you once were. Hadn't the townsfolk seen him, gibbering and broken, coming out of those woods? The day he saw death. That figure, twice his size, there but not real, pushed him without touching. It was waiting for him, right there where the earth got loose. And it threw him, head first, to where solid ground met ravines. Davy was plunged downwards through a head smash of rock and fistfuls of grit. He started a prayer that hit the dirt when he did. He pulled his injured weight back up that ravine. Goodness knows how, but he did. Death watched out of that eye all the way, close enough to breathe on his neck, Miss with his head a little more. Davy hadn't been into the woods since. Even after the nightmare stopped and death's face became like a thing he'd made up. The change in him was sudden, but only where he could see it. Outside he was still readjusting, becoming his true self. The fellas don't know about that time. Too young. So it's true, we was just thinking, saying, how folks must got it wrong. You ain't the hunting type. Maybe it's because Sally is listening. But this burns Davy a little. I was once. He was a legend around these parts, Sally says. She's smiling just for Davy. Oh, I'm old enough to remember. The fellas laughed, disbelieving. Not at Sally's youthful looks, but that this mild, sensuous man could hunt anything. Won't you prove it? Yeah, Davy, show us. Can't say as I care to. Ah, come on, David. We dare you. They've got magnetic, twinkling eyes. Davy can't look away. What is it you want me to catch? I, I-, I know just the thing for Master Hunter such as yourself. A, uh, what was the name of that thing? Levi, L- not just Mason this time. Um, a, uh, a spy me. Uh. Yeah, that was it. I, I heard it escape from one of those circuses. Uh, Yeah, that's right. A a circus came in last month from Europe. Europe, yeah. Now, you may not have heard of a spy-me-er, Davey. That's because it's a strange foreign type of animal. Levi nods towards Jackson. European type. It's been seen in these woods. Kimberly wants it for a pet. Ain't that so? Connor squeezes the shoulder of his girl. Levi laughs a loud bellyful. The girl nods yes as though they're speaking another language. Hasn't Davy got to go back sometime? Face the thing that put the fear into it? So why not now? Don't the fellas just have to laugh? It's a funny thing. A make-believe animal for a make-believe hunter. Davy goes home, checks his books. A spy meter? It isn't there, just as he thought. He's getting old, but he ain't getting stupid. The fellas, they don't let up. The joke is a morsel stuck in their teeth. It makes words for them every time they open their mouths. Still waiting, Davy? Yep. What you waiting for? Just waiting for the right time, fellas. Ain't it the right time yet? Almost. Is it the cold or the fear rattling his bones? The damp undergrowth seeps into his boots. Tree roots crunch loose under his feet. Each step he takes, he grows more uncertain. He's traveling backwards, back to being a much younger man. few feet ahead is the ravine. Davy stumbles, his nerve is gone. What was he thinking coming out here at night? He won't survive another fall, not at his age. Davy feels it. Standing right behind him. He turns sharp, stumbles back another step, too close to the edge. Davy's breath comes quick. Death's dark face is the night sky. But somehow that eye is there, suspended, unblinking. You've taken everything I ever loved, Davy shouts. His voice is high, young, unbroken. You're not gonna take me! The woods. Pause, breathe a slow breath. The whole scene moves in a way that isn't possible. In and out, like a heat wave. It's a cold night. Better get to living then, death seems to say. How his nightmares distorted the memory, put more horror into his experience. All he needs is a little courage. Davy sees. He's not been fleeing from death. He's been fleeing from life. Death as a truth sayer. Who would have thought? The fellas are in before Davy. <laughs> They've heard tell that Davy's been out in them woods. All eyes turn as he swings through the door. He's got that swagger in his walk again. One last time. And a question for Sally. Me too. Davy, he can tempt her back towards Red again. Levi shifts in his seat. I'm just keeping your seat warm for you, he laughs. The beer is already doing its work. No need to move, Davy says. I'm taking a different stool tonight. The fellas want to wait till Davy's seated, but the question needs to be asked. So did you go, Davy? Was the time right? They're expecting a revelation. There's nothing about Davy to suggest it. It was, fellas, he says. Davy sits, perches, really, as if he might not be staying. Sally is back from the storeroom. The sight of Davy puts the smile back on her face. Good seeing you, she says. There's a little wonder in her voice. Had she really thought she'd not see him again? I'm making us some margaritas. Let's have a little celebration. Yes. Let's, says Davy. Who is he now? This mild, sensuous man who has lost his fear. A margarita-drinking man, perhaps. Davy hasn't forgotten the sack slung across his shoulder. The fellas lean in as he loosens the tie. There's something moving in there. Davy rests the sack on the countertop, tilts it a little so whatever it is can get out. Ears first. It has brown fur, blue tinged, an almost electric glow. (coughs) Its dark eyes watching everybody as if they are the strange ones. Four legs, well, that was to be expected. Kind of rabbity rudenty What the hell is that? A spy me, uh, Davy says. Just like you asked me for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> by Castellina Botham. Reread by Saul Wright. Casalina is a lawyer in London and a recent convert to short story writing. This is her first writing success, and she is somewhat overexcited. (laughs) She's expecting her first baby, and her husband is ecstatic that he can soon pass on the job of listening to all of her stories. (laughs) Saul is winner of the 2010 and 2008 Audible Unabridged Audiobook of the Year Award. He's narrated over 50 TV documentaries for Sky History Channel. Nominated Best Actor in 2001, Saul's one-man storytelling programme has toured 36 cities in seven countries, including off-Broadway and off-West End London. Recent theatre work includes Prospero and Sherlock, both off-West End productions. Saul.
4: Let There Be Light, by Casalina Boto. General Sentongo was a fat man. When he was still, his sagging jowls settled like the drawn roller blinds in his kitchen. And when he moved, they swung violently from side to side. Eh, Ondongo, you're part of this country. Simple, it is simple, he laughed deeply from his belly. Where there is electricity? Where is the electricity? My red carpet, your tarmac rose. Jesus Christ, my backside. My backside is numb from those potholes. Sentongo made a show of grabbing each of his buttocks and laughed until tears welled in his eyes. Imagine, even these bloody cushioned butt cheeks, they've been left threadbare by the state of your rose. Odongo laughed along with him, and stopped abruptly when he stopped. Odongo, come now, we live in difficult times, but you don't have to live without light. General, uh, no one in this area has electricity. I cannot demand it from my home alone, Odongo replied. Odongo, you need to strengthen that that backbone, or has it been crippled by the roads like my own buttocks? Sentongo frowned seriously. Odongo, you have seen my house. The wardrobes are made from the purest mahogany shipped from Brazil. The roller blinds, Glide when you pull them. The rooms shine with the brightest light at the flick of a switch. The shillings I'm paid to be in charge of our country's army do not do me justice. I get justice from the extras. Jesus Christ, they're part of the deal. Odongo looked around his own house, which was the only brick building in the village, surrounded by mud huts. His wife, Mercy, loved letting newcomers know that life was comfortable. Odongo heard her sometimes, and pride and guilt would warm his cheeks. My husband, he is head of the army in this region. Yes, yes, the whole northern region. We live in the brick house on Masindi Road. You must have seen it. The one made of bricks. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. You know the one. But, go rationalized, what harm would one generator do? And he could almost hear Mercy's sweet voice. Eh, you will definitely know my house. The one with the electricity shining brightly through the windows. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's right. The bright house, made of bricks. And <laughs> General... Perhaps you are right. A generator will help me serve our country late into the dark evenings. It was two weeks after the generator was installed that Odongo received the first letter. Typed, anonymous, and thrown like a hand grenade through his letterbox. More than half of the soldiers in Odongo's region were based at roadblocks, and on the day of the letter he drove through as many of as the potholes would allow. The first was the largest in Apats on Akorokoro Road, manned by six men. Four were asleep in hammocks as Odongo approached. They tumbled out like white ants when they heard of his arrival. Colonel Odongo is in Goma, they saluted in unison before one rushed off to get the roadblocks log. Good morning, God bless. I was in the area and thought I would drop by. They looked nervous. again the uh, the past week has been incredibly, incredibly busy. Two very, very large incidents. One extended late into the night and took up a huge amount of men hours. Let's skip these formalities. I want to check on how everybody is. The six of you, the regiment generally. Silence. How are you? That's all. Some shuffling of feet and staring at the red dust covering their battered boots. Do you have any requests for the officers? Any feedback on your conditions? Anything you need? We're, we're fine, kennel, came the reply as all of the men stared firmly at the dust. Three more checks at Kitgum, Aroa, and Nimuli roads and a near-identical response from each. Odongo started to wonder whether it was he who was being tested, played with like a goat before a slitting. The man who sent the letter would surely be brave enough to make himself known. Over the next week, Odongo dropped in on every roadblock in his region. Each time, he posed the basic questions, received baffled looks, and left with feeble responses. It was more than a week after his final drop-in that a second letter arrived. Odongo read and reread it under the light of the generator. You want to know who we are? We are neglected. I'm speaking not just for the soldiers, but for all inhabitants of this region. The good schools, hospitals, power supplies are all in the south, where both the president and the chief of staff families live. We have nothing here, no investment, no power, no future. We have heard good, kind words about you, Colonel, and we have watched these past weeks as you have tried to find us. But how are we to know whether you come to help us or arrest us? We need some sign. New Visions headline a month later. Colonel Odongo Isingoma demands equal investment in his region and access to the good schools, hospitals, and power supplies currently enjoyed only in the south. General Sentongo was furious at the anonymous priestly press leak and Odongo's wife, Mercy, could not understand why her husband was determined to rock her comfortable, bright brick house. But Odongo's pen friend understood, and the third letter simply read, 14 hours, Thursday, Aloy Road, by Ogorogoro water pump. The days passed slowly until Thursday arrived. In his uniform, Odongo looked out of place as he walked down Aloy Road, surrounded by men and women with their yellow jerry cans, either empty and swinging by their sides or filled to the brim and balanced carefully on their heads. Kennel! Kennel! shouted the soldier from the shade of a mango tree as Odongo approached the water pump. Odongo recognized him from one of his roadblock visits. It was you who has been sending me these letters? No, Kennel. It was all, all of us. We have gathered to discuss our situation. Follow me. He walked purposefully and Odongo followed a few paces behind. The rains had stayed away for months, and the ground was hot and dusty, creating a red cloud behind each of the soldiers' footprints. After about a kilometer, the soldier moved from the road to the bushes, which were so wild that they hid him completely. It was only when they gave way to a village that Odongo could see his pen friend marching ahead. The families the men passed looked confused and hastily huddled into their mud huts when they saw the pair leaving their goats and chickens to watch as the men disappeared into the adjoining bushes. This continued until the soldier stopped in a wide clearing and sent a message from his phone. "'Wait, they will come,' he said as they sat in the clearing. The rustling began shortly afterwards. One, two, twenty, fifty. More and more soldiers drew the bushes back like curtains and entered the clearing. They they gathered expectantly in a circle. Comrades, let's begin, the lead soldier said when the rustling was dying down. He turned to face Odongo and talked as if the crowd had disappeared. I am Nyankori Kato and have been chosen by our comrades to represent them. Our beloved country is suffering in the dirty hands of the President and the Chief of Staff. Our people in the North are not equal citizens. The rights to basic investment are consolidated with the privileged few. We are ridiculed by the peoples of the world as they see our leaders living like this puff daddy with their houses and cars. The leadership is based on corruption, which is killing our country, our impoverished people, and it can be no more. The circle of men were roused by Ng words and nodded in fur- furious agreement. I, uh, I don't disagree with a word you have said, said Nya- um, Odongo, remembering his own comfortable existence as the sweaty trickle of corruption ran slowly down his spine. The same thoughts trouble me daily, but I am at a loss to know what can be done. King Mutebi II has sent a message to us via his footmen. He's embarrassed by this dirty country. Two fellow heads of African countries and three heads of European governments have contacted him threatening to withdraw all international aid. He wants to find a new chief of staff who will stand up for our beloved country. A a coup? You want me to stage a coup? Odongo spluttered and felt as though the dry red dust was slowly filling his lungs. The planning took months, cajoling soldiers, ministers, MPs, Odongo and his new friends were like park rangers herding fat, lazy buffalo. Odongo felt like every meeting he had with General Sentongo in those weeks would be his last, that Sentongo would hear of their plans and dispose of Odongo behind bars. But to Odongo's relief, the comments about the pot-bellied roads and Sentongo's distressed butt cheeks continued until the date was finally set. 12th of July. The president would be in Addis Ababa and General Santongo in Brazil. The plan was technical and the king had thought it all through with his team of lawyers who sat in their pristine suits in each meeting. Do you have more than half of the army on your side? The fussy lawyers asked repeatedly. When we attack the president, the impatient soldiers responded we want to oust the president peacefully if possible and we'll amend the constitution when he's on international duties responded the lawyers it was so much babble to the soldier's deaf ears i want to be the man who sleeps the throat of general santongo i don't care how i'll do it with your goddamn constitution if you want odongo's pen friend told the bemused suits the truth was they were all surprised by the lack of carnage. Some of Odongo's new friends were bloodthirsty, so there was disappointment too. But it happened in a way which showed how the new regime wanted to govern, defined by peace. The king called an emergency session of parliament where he proposed to dissolve parliament as temporarily allowed under the amended constitution. It was approved by 111 to 89. Among those who voted against was the president's son, who had been groomed as the president's successor. The son left the room in disbelief, swearing bloody revenge. He was met by crowds of the rejoicing public who had already started their celebrations, and at the front of the crowds were the police officers who arrested him on the king's instructions. The president caught wind of the parliament's dissolution immediately and flew back to the capital. He, too, was met with handcuffs. His loyal bodyguards defended him determinedly, and were among the day's few casualties. Eventually, the president was returned to the family compound where he was reunited with his son and held under house arrest for five days before being exiled to Juba. Odongo was more interested in the events surrounding General Sentongo, Sentongo had been wardrobe shopping with his wife in Sao Paulo when he heard of the dissolution. He arranged for his son to ship his prized possessions to a new house in Tripoli and never set foot in his homeland again. And Odongo? Yes, yes, he was offered the position of new chief of staff under his country's first democratically elected president, who was in place within four months of the dissolution. But Odongo declined. He had been too involved, seen too much, and let the trickle of corruption run too deeply through his life. That first day after the revolution, Odongo drove back to his village, smiling like a hyena. It was on that bumpy journey that he decided to devote his days to campaigning for equal treatment for his region. It took some time But eventually, Mercy grew to enjoy their new life, and she basked like a lizard in the goodwill and appreciation that their neighbours flooded upon them. They worked well into the night in the new local library, the only brick building in the village, which was brightly lit thanks to the light of an anonymously donated generator.
0: Thank you, Saul. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars will return on the 8th of April with a Shakespearean slings and arrows. The next submission deadline is the end of March for May's beginning and end. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are on the Liars' website. And so... Our final story of the evening will be Do You Dare Me to Cross the Line? by Mike Clark. We read by Alex Woodward. Mike recently completed a creative writing MA and is currently putting the final touches to his first novel. His day job involves working in the margins of the criminal justice system, a source of unparalleled inspiration for a crime writer. A shame, then, that he isn't (laughs) born. Alex has worked in comedy for the last 14 years on stage, TV, and radio. He DJs extensively around the country in clubs, festivals, and in a zombie chase game 2.8 hours later. He's also half of the Coffin Dodgers Disco, which I believe is now held here. (laughs) Um, Interests include ballroom dancing, Native American art, and pornography. Alex.
5: (laughs) Do you dare me to cross the line by Michael (laughs) Clark. Truth or dare, Rachel shouts when the partied-out conversation dies down for a few embarrassing seconds. We're all staring glassy-eyed, wondering how in hell's name this group of half a dozen ironically half-cut hipsters has rocked up in my lounge at four in the morning. Actually I know damned well while we're here, being the guy owning this loft apartment, a spaced out stumble from the Hoxton Dive Bar strip. The artists like to slag off the tech set, saying, We're drawn to silicon roundabout like flies around a decomposing Damon Hurst cow's head pricing out who they call the real creatives. But it's all peace and harmony when they realise you've got this cool place on the coolest street and they soon invite themselves to dance all night, smoke or drop whatever us starry-eyed fools will let them. And Rachel, my gallerista girlfriend, is that habit I can't kick. Shit, no, I say. The last time I woke up two days later, not knowing how the hell I got this on my arm, I point to the tattoo on my bicep, Rachel's idea of a cosmic angel. It's cool, Anya says. She comes close, traces the swirling inky lines with her finger like a maze. And I start to warm to her, thinking... She's not such a parasitic pain in the ass. She's a mate of Rachel's, hung out here a couple of times before. She's a photographer, but I wouldn't need to tell you that if you saw how she's constantly whipping out her digital SLR. She snapped all kinds of abstract banalities tonight uh, Rachel's earlobe, uh, sweat marks on my running top, a distressed brick. Fucking weird. <coughs> she turns up with this guy, Nick. A bushy beard, a thick-rimmed specks, the whole uniform. Posy git. I thought they were together, but uh, with artists, who knows. So Rachel grabs the almost-dead wine bottle from the table, drains the last of the pinot, and starts spinning it. We're all sat in a circle on the artfully mismatched furniture she's salvaged for me chintzy sofas, a church pew, and uh, even an old dentist's chair. No one's heart is in the game. A few faux, embarrassing truths, a cliché dare, a girl with black lipstick whose name I don't know gives a bottle of craft beer a blowjob that's so half-heartedly mechanical, it's like she's saying to the three guys there, I'm too late to even think about it. (laughs) The bottle points at Anya. Truth. I got my first from art school for shooting nudes. Anya fixes me with a stare. Male nudes. She takes out her iPhone as if we were interested in proof and shows some black and white images of ripped torsos. Nick takes an even greater interest than Rachel. Well, maybe he and Anya are not an tonight. Everybody goes cool or sick, but I'm thinking, is that such a big deal for a photographer? (laughs) Anya spins the bottle, and its neck points right at me. Da! Rachel says. Sure, I say, warily inspecting the personal hygiene of the other two guys, anticipating some kind of lame and metrosexual man snog Rachel's dared me with before. Pose for Anya! Rachel says. Piss off is my initial reaction. (laughs) Then what? Now? Here? Why not? She's brought a camera. It'd be cool to have a photo of you like that on my iPhone. Proof that you're probably the only web developer in East London with a (laughs) six-pack. Rachel runs her hand over my stomach in the way that promises a morning of hardcore action in bed once her hangers-on are out of the door. I slightly warm to the idea. I do look after myself. Though I work out, I'm not always going to be able to wriggle into a pair of skinny jeans. And it is my 30th birthday coming up, she says, echoing my anxieties. Well, if uh, if Fanny is up for doing it, I say, half-hoping Annie will decline. I'd be delighted, she says, smiling. (laughs) But I'm not taking some pseudo-porno selfies. I need to add some artistic integrity. A team for me to work with. And somewhere private to shoot. Somewhere private? I'm starting to wonder about this, but I'm not going to back down from this there. Just pinning my hopes on Rachel being, I guess, possessive. But it's not happening. Use the kitchen, Rachel says. He spends more time there than in front of his Mac. Cool, says Hannah. Done, I say with brittle bravado and spin the bottle again. It points to Rachel. Dare! Group dare, she says. That's her individual twist on the rules and shows even she's bored of this bloody stupid game. She slams a fistful of pills on the table everybody except Anya and me grabs one or more and leaps up as Rachel cranks the jungle screaming something about dancing till dawn in Nick's ear and then realize how friendly she's been with him all night. So, where's the kitchen? Anya asks, fingers clasping around her lens. The kitchen diner's tucked around a corner from the lounge. Rachel's right, I hang out there more than I realise. This is my territory, and the lounge hers. Its stripped pine floors are now being pounded by spaced-out feet. So you cook, Anya asks, tailing me. Before I get a chance to answer, she closes the door behind her, and I'm wondering why Rachel's not followed us here too. Is this some trust thing? I mean, Anya's a cute girl, but... She's no Rachel. Can't stand that fucking noise, either. Anya adds. She surveys the shining stainless steel, looking at the pans and utensils hanging from the ceiling. And I properly notice her eyes for the first time. Wide, blue, long-lashed. She's a slight figure, dressed down in black with close-cropped hair. But a girl with a tongue stud's not normally my kind. Maybe it's the booze of the situation. But I'm starting to find her more attractive than I should. Are are you sure you want to do this? I ask. I'd let you escape your dare. Rachel would kill me. She's obviously given the theme some thought and goes on, I'm thinking we do contrasts. Given the theme, a human body, food, sensuality, right? A knife's steel blade against skin, the soft texture of steak pressed into hard, bony rib, shimmering oil spread on tight, tense muscle. You got anything in here that would help with that? (laughs) She speaks with an intensity that has me obediently raiding the kitchen drawers. While she's fixing her camera settings, I search the cupboards, lay out the knives from my block, and raid the fridge for fresh ingredients. She seems pleased when I pull out this kick-ass beef rib i hustled for Sunday from the farmer's market. My heart's pounding now. The situation's starting to arouse me. I know that's not a good thing, but my discomfiture makes it worse. I'm not sure if I can do this, and I'm hoping, and not hoping, Rachel's going to stop dancing and join us. You can take your clothes off, if you dare, Anya says. I enthusiastically slip off my sneakers, discard my socks, and unfasten my shirt, slowing as I reach the bottom buttons. I undo my belt and step warily out of my jeans. And then I fold and unfold my trousers several times before I finally place them over a dining chair. Anya stands there watching me in my Calvin Klein's, looking me up and down with what I take to be the eye of a professional photographer. She purses her lips, smiles, nods as if she seems to consider her plans for the shoot. And most of all, she waits. I'm feeling sized up like an object, uncomfortable, wondering how I'm shaping up against all those first-class nudes she's photographed for her degree but at the same time feeling like an impersonal commodity the meat for the shoot is making me embarrassingly (laughs) horny (laughs) was wondering i say uh, uh, can i do this wearing my pants i run behind the island hob to open the fridge pull out a string of organic sausages and twirl them around my neck. <laughs> a kind of comedy gambit that gives me an oblique way out. Let's make it light-hearted. <laughs> I don't do light-hearted, <laughs> Anya says. And I hate sausages.
0: <laughs>
5: so, sausages around? I ask, standing behind the hole. I never met a daring sausage. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me five or ten minutes, just to sort of relax into the idea of it? I ask, taking another tack. She waits, camera in hand. I lower my voice. Anya, I've got a bloody huge hard on. (laughs) You mentioned the elephant in the room. She says, (laughs) laughing. I thought we might be able to, you know, pretend it wasn't there. I'm a professional. I've worked with many nude guys, although mortals don't usually present themselves in your state. But I've got no problem with it, no problem at all. I hear the dull beat of Rachel's hypnotic dance music pulsing in the background, and realize there is no way out. Okay, let's do it. I set my hands either side of my waistband and ease the trunks down my legs. I inhale slowly and deeply and stare down as the pants hit the floor. And then I step right in front of her. Annie doesn't look away. Maybe takes a deep breath herself, but she stares for what feels like half the rest of my life. (laughs) And I feel exposed. Revealed. Awkward. But then somehow liberated when she eventually smiles. And then Annie places her camera down and pulls off her T-shirt and then her jeans. What the fuck are you doing? I ask, and now hoping to hell that Rachel doesn't walk in. But then Rachel dared me, right? It's the way I work she says, slipping out of her underwear with none of my agonising self-consciousness. I insist on sharing the vulnerability of the situation with my subjects. And you see that trust in the photographs. But this way you're also going to see this in the photos, I say, pointing below my waist. Is that professional? I'll work around it, she says. (laughs) Trust. (laughs) And I stare hard at her naked body, her pierced nipples, her tattoos, and her natural, unshaved pubes. I get exactly what she means, and now I'm totally in this girl's hands. She takes dozens of photos, um, directs me in poses. I feel sparks when she leads me by the arm. She comes close and I catch the aroma of her hair, the heaviness of her breathing, and I'm wondering if she's aroused too. But I remind myself that we've stayed, just about, on the professional side of the line. This is all about a late-night dare I didn't back down from. But I'm starting to want her. She kneels beside me, camera gazing upwards, and her head's are professional six inches away from my waist, and I'm setting myself a dare of my own now. <laughs> a move of my hips and an encouraging palm plays through the back of her head, and I might be changing my opinions on girls with tongue studs forever. <clears throat> and I think, even if I'm right about Anya, what if Rachel walks through the door? If we cross that line? How she'd yell, it was the end of us. But then I remember how she yelled the same at me last week. And how she'd been so eager to dance with Nick. And the realisation starts to hit me that this dare might be one huge setup. I look into Anya's eyes. And I see her stare back at me and moisten her parted lips as if waiting for a cue and think, (sighs) I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. (laughs) And you don't make me wait any longer, I say to myself. I close my eyes and wait and wait. And the throbbing music fades away. And then I hear the shutter rattle on the
3: SLR.